Hey everybody, this is Ben Kesnoka, co-founder and partner at Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is our podcast, where we go deep on all things business and technology with world-leading experts. Hello, everybody. My name is Olga Sergeyevich, and I'm Head of Investor Relations at Village Global. I am excited to introduce one of my favorite authors as our guest today, Sebastian Malaby. Sebastian wrote a number of books about different parts of the financial services industry, including The Power Law, Venture Capital, and Making of the New Future, The Man Who Knew, The Life and Times of Alan Greenspan, and More Money Than God, Hedge Funds and the Making of a New Elite. During his career at The Economist and other publications, Sebastian also got a chance to write about a number of important historical events, including the release of Nelson Mandela during his work in Africa. In today's conversation, we'll talk about Sebastian's insights on covering important historical events on different industries that he wrote about and how technology is changing the world around us. Sebastian, welcome to Village Global Stories. Yeah, great to be with you, Olga. So let's start at the beginning. You've spent time studying and working at some of the most admired institutions in the world, from Oxford University to The Economist to Council on Foreign Relations. What are some of the surprising things about these institutions that you learned being a part of them? So I think there's a theory about institutions that they mold people and they shape them, they help them to grow professionally. And that's true, but I think it's done in a pretty subtle way sometimes. And I'd say that the surprise when it comes to Oxford University, The Economist, the Council of Foreign Relations is that is they kind of leave it up to you a lot. So when I was an undergraduate, you know, I would go see a professor for maybe one, one and a half hours per week. And the rest of the time, I had a long list of books I was supposed to read and a large amount of words I was supposed to write. And it was kind of up to me to figure out what I would do with that. And then at The Economist, I remember I joined as an intern at first. I was 22 years old. And the first week they said, um, so what article are you proposing? And I had to come up with the idea. I had to pitch it, sell it, and I had to execute on it. Uh, and they didn't care that there were other people with exactly the same three duties who were 52, not 22. And it was sort of just, you know, from day one up to me to, to generate ideas. And again, at the Council of Foreign Relations, it's very much a kind of each senior fellow there is a pretty much a solo intellectual entrepreneur. And yes, we we get together on calls and in meetings. Yes, we um, have a terrific sort of institutional mechanism for distributing our work through our website and through podcasts and whatever. But the idea generation and the writing that we each do is is pretty solo. Um, and so I'd say the commonality and the surprise is how much in the end is up to the individual. And do you still remember the title or the topic of your first article at, uh, at The Economist? Well, I remember it was about Lebanon <laughs> because um, Lebanon was a, uh, you know, then as now, a difficult country to be based in as a Westerner and I think probably even harder back then in the 80s. And so there was no correspondent for The Economist who was based in Lebanon. So I figured that this gave me an entrance, you know, as the sort of desk-bound person in London, at least initially, 
um, they couldn't say, yeah, but you're not on the ground because nobody was on the ground. So if I did enough reading and managed to find enough spooks and, you know, diplomats who had just come back from there or whatever, I could put together a story and, uh, and, and pass, the, pass the test. So it's an interesting insight about these institutions giving you a lot of freedom to follow your intellectual curiosity. And um, but at the same time, you know, still get a lot done and stay focused on on certain types of um, objectives that you might have. And recently, there's been a lot of conversations about work from home, about remote work, and some companies have very strong views on someone's ability to deliver the same results when they are self-directed and you know not in an office, not in a structured environment. So what would you say? Like what, you know, what are some of the qualities? What is the type of a person who you would say would be successful in a self-directed environment versus not? As you know, perhaps part of the reflection on this topic of remote work and effectiveness. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, paradoxically, given what I've just been saying about being pretty self-directed. At these institutions, I do believe in going into the office and the value of seeing colleagues and so forth. And in my case, that was a lot about friendship. I mean, I just made really close friendships with the people I was working with at all of those places. And, you know, I think if you're engaged in fairly self-directed, fairly independent work, which is what writers do, you do need still human contact and psychologically, emotionally just in terms of your morale, that's really important. So that's one thing I would say. And also, I don't want to, you know, give the impression that the value of the institution in shaping your work is, is nothing. There is feedback. So you direct yourself the idea in doing it, but then you're going to be told by colleagues if it's any good or not, and how could it be better? And all of those three institutions, Oxford University, The Economist, and the Council of Relations put a lot of energy into feedback. So, you know, obviously at Oxford, there were serious exams, which took professors a long time to grade, but they took that seriously. At The Economist, the editing was really intensive. And if one of my big debts is to a terrific older journalist called Nick Harmon, who sadly died recently, but I remember him um, calling me into his office when I'd written an article and he was going to edit it. And he would say, well, have a chair next to me because I'm going to bash it about a bit. And then he would say, he would get it on the screen. He would say, just a bit more topspin on this sentence. And then he would tweak it, you know, two or three small ways. And I would watch him do this. And I'd say, whoa, yes, that's quite subtle changes, but it adds to this sort of sense of, of urgency in the sentence, or it just cuts out three words out of 15, and that just reduces the drag factor. And so I really, you know, learned a lot from that. And um, equally at the Council for Relations, there is a very serious, you know, review process. If you do a council-sponsored book, um, they're going to review the idea at the beginning. They're going to review what you do at the end. They're going to make you redo some of it. Um, so it's, it, and that's very important. So even though you're self-directed for like 80, 90% of the time, that other 10, 20%, is really important in in developing as a as a professional. So the key really is human connection and a feedback loop. Yeah. So I'd say that, for example, I mean, I have a um, 27 year old daughter who is a finishing her PhD at University of Chicago in astrophysics, 
And it, she does the kind of work which I believe she can do, you know, pretty independently. And she's very self-directed about it. But I think she would agree that going into a lab or going into, you know, going to a conference in the summer gives you that, you know, human to human connection, which is kind of important to your morale. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think there is a lot to be said about being surrounded by people who are doing something in your industry, but then sort of calibrating the ambition and goals and things, right? Because you never know if what, what you are trying to accomplish sounds like a huge, crazy goal, or maybe you're not pushing yourself hard enough. So part of the value of these gatherings and being surrounded by your peers is is also just that. Um, and, and we'll talk about lots of different places and industries. But, um, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that Wall Street and New York has always been so incredibly ambitious and you know hardworking is because you're surrounded by other people who are like that, right? And they push you much, much further than a lot of the other cultures and environments. Um, and of course, every environment pushes you in some ways, um, right? But but it's it's really being surrounded by a lot of people going towards the same goal that that has that interesting component. Um, so let's move into, into your writing. You've written books about hedge funds, about international finance, most recently about venture capital. And, um, and I love all that because uh, selfishly, it <laughs> follows my career and encompasses all of my interests. But um, tell us a little bit about your reflections on the types of players and motivations and what you've seen in these different areas of the capital intimidation industry. How are they similar and different? Well, starting with the parallel, uh, my book on venture capital, what struck me was the incredible willingness to network and connect me with other people. You know, every time I finished a good conversation with somebody, that person would typically say, well, how could I be helpful? Would I would I like an introduction to somebody else? And if I said, well, yeah, there's these two people, they would actually do it. And, you know, they would expend personal capital in connecting me with other people, which, frankly, in New York, I did not find at all. And, and, and weirdly, the only people who made me promises about connecting me to others and who though, and then totally failed to deliver were like the non-Silicon Valley, non-startup people. They kind of said it, but they didn't mean it, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, great, you know, great to meet you. Yeah, you know, well, I'm a professor at Stanford these days, so when you come out to uh, Silicon Valley, you know, let me know and I'll organize a dinner for you. Not. No, that, 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 <laughs> because, because these people were fundamentally not of the startup culture. Um, so, I think that extroversion that, you know, you know, the, the essence of being a VC, I joke, is um, you get up in the morning, you have breakfast with one person, you have 14 cups of coffee, hopefully decaffeinated before you go to bed. Because it's all about, you know, meeting the next person you might fund, the person you funded last month who's now having a problem and you have to help them, the five engineers who might be the first hires to some startup that you funded a couple of months ago. You know, it's all about connecting people, meeting people, assessing people, you know, and all that. Um, whereas in hedge fund space, you know, I remember going to see Lewis Bacon, a famous macro trader, and he was hiding behind about three screens with all this financial data on his screen and hardly kind of put his head around the side when I arrived. And 
People used to joke that when Lewis Bacon did well and he bought himself a private island, it made no difference because he was so insular. Anyway, now if you add in then the central bankers, okay, because I wrote this um, biography of Alan Greenspan, uh, the man who knew, I would say that what stands out relative to this sort of private investor world is this, this extreme risk aversion and kind of willingness to be theoretical and never mind the practical and and not sort of necessarily look at the results of what you do but look at the theory of what you're doing you know these are quite striking tribal features when you study central bankers so for example um, it is unbelievable that silicon valley bank had assigned to it some rather large number of um you know, Federal Reserve supervisors full-time on Silicon Valley Bank. I was told this by the, you know, I probably shouldn't name who exactly, but somebody at Silicon Valley Bank who was very senior, who said, yeah, there were these people from the San Francisco Fed and they were assigned to watch over us. That was all they did. Guess how many there were? And I said, well, you know, two. And he goes, no, it's like two orders of magnitude more than that. Think 200 and something. I mean, so they do all this, but they plainly didn't spot that, hey, interest rates are raise, rising, which they should know about since they're from the Fed and that's what's rising, raising rates. You know, interest rates are rising. So, you know, the bond portfolio held by Silicon Valley Bank is going to be killed in value and that's going to be a problem. I mean, what were they thinking? And I think in the same way, you know, I would have conversations with macroeconomists and they would say, we've got everything, you know, I'm talking about Federal Reserve macroeconomists, We've got everything worked out. We've figured out how to target inflation. And I would go, yeah, you're very good at the price of eggs, making those stable. But what about the nest eggs? You know, the savings, the, the, the capital market bubbles that are going on. Asset prices are going through the roof. And you're telling me you have it all figured out. And they say, oh, don't worry, don't worry. You know, um, that's where the regulation will fix it. And I say, well, it hasn't fixed it in the past. Are you sure it's going to fix it? And of course, it doesn't fix it. But they are so pleased to have discovered the model for how to do, you know, inflation targeting and all that, that that they they would ignore the practical consequences of not adjusting rates in the face of asset price bubbles. Um, so I'd say, yeah, to sum it up, central bankers, super theoretical, you know, money making investors, much more practical, much more results oriented. But in one case, you've got venture capitalists who are you know, schmoozers, connectors, extroverts. And on the other case, you've got these introverted hedge fund people who, in a sense, it's not a good thing if they like hanging out with fellow investors, because then they might say what their trade is. And then that trade will be copied, and it will become crowded, and you can't get out of it. And yeah, so those are some of the differences. And if you had to choose um, one of these industries to spend the next 20 years in, what would you choose? Well, if I couldn't be a writer, I think uh, venture investing would be top of the list. It's just so much, it looks like so much fun. I mean, the whole world of dealing in bold aspirations about the future and running these iterative experiments with each startup being an experiment and hanging out with these incredibly ambitious, optimistic people. I mean, it's just terrific. I would, I would, yeah. You know. Weirdly, when I was leaving Oxford, I had an offer to do a master's at Stanford when Stanford was not quite what it became later. This was like the mid 80s. And I thought, ah, yeah, Stanford, Schmanford. And I just went straight to The Economist magazine, became a journalist instead. 
maybe that was the wrong turn. I don't know. Um, well, venture capital is certainly a lot of fun. And I know in the past you mentioned intellectual curiosity as one of the main driving forces of your career. Um, so this is certainly the place where you can continue following your intellectual curiosity in pretty much any direction um, uh, without any limits for a very long time. Um, so uh, yes, well, you know, if, if, if you decide to, to try something new, give us a call. Uh, and, um, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit more about um, the power law. So this is your book about venture capital. Um, it was written a couple of years ago. And in the last few years, lots of things changed, uh, particularly with, you know, some of the geographies, some of the industry coverage, um, a couple of, you know, different sort of transitions at some of the prominent firms. So as you think about, you know, have any of your conclusions about the industry or anything maybe changed from where you left off in the book? So I, I'll, I'll mention three things um, where you know, partly I'm kind of going to mention things which people might think I miss, but I'm not sure I did. So the biggest obvious elephant in the room is that the market, the valuations collapsed. Um, so I published the book in um, February of 2022. Uh, it's right around the peak. You know, there's there's been obviously a, a massive reckoning with collapsing valuations and people, you know, having to, to figure that out and just not doing deals for 12, 18 months. But, you know, I write quite a bit in the book about the cycles of bubbles, and I explain why bubbles are just inevitable in venture capital, because you don't have an off switch as a VC. You can't just, you know, you can't go short the asset class, unlike um, in hedge fund investing. Uh, and you can't really even express a negative view verbally, because you're trying to syndicate into other deals led by other VCs. And if you want to lead the next round or be included in this round, obviously you're not going to say something negative about the other VCs of the deal. Um, so I think there's a kind of code of silence. And furthermore, if you wanted to invent a kind of joke scenario in which this group think, you would put all of the investors on one road, you know, we'll call it Sandhill Road, and we'll say there'll only be one great, you know, hotel, restaurant, bar, we'll call it the Rosewood, and, um, you know, everyone will hang out together. Of course, that's going to foster some groupthink. Uh, oh, and you'll be on boards together, startups, you'll rub shoulders, and, you know. So I think it's necessarily like that, and that's also, by the way, a strength. That's where you get the networking and the, the, the kind of fluidity of ideas that move around that ecosystem so efficiently. But there's this negative side, which is that there are going to be bubbles. Um, and in fact, there's a chart at the back of the book that talks about the unicorn bubble, even though it hadn't burst yet. And yeah, so I don't think I missed that, but it clearly was a big change after the book came out. Second thing is, you know, I make a lot about a lot of, uh, I devote a lot of space to Sequoia. And um, I did that because it was just sort of acknowledged to be the best venture firm out there. And it had also been very bold in moving beyond just Series A boutique investing in, in Silicon Valley, and it had gone international to China, et cetera, China, India, you know, Europe, and it had done growth equity, it had a hedge fund business, and, and so on. And since the book came out, um, some of that stuff has had to be reappraised, right? So because of the geopolitics, they severed their relationship with the China Sequoia operation while they were at it. They um, sort of spun out the Indian operation too, 
although they've kept the European one, um, the strategy of doing longer holding periods and indeed holding companies that you liked from Series A through into your growth fund and then in your hedge fund after they go public, you know, it doesn't look so great when, um, you know, the public markets collapse and you probably should have sold some of those hedge fund positions instead of just being faithfully long these these companies that you've backed in Series A. So, you know, that on top of the embarrassment of having invested in FTX, the embarrassment of having backed um, Elon Musk's, you know, ill-fated takeover of uh, Twitter, which in my view was actually much worse than FTX because that was sort of a M&A transaction. It wasn't even a venture deal. So why did Sequoia need to be in it? And it was a big check, whereas the FTX check was de minimis for a firm like Sequoia. So I think I think there there have been you know Sequoia's been forced to adapt and it's taken a few hits, but I don't again think this is a fundamental sort of problem with my thesis because you know books I mean sorry venture companies always face adversity and indeed I describe many moments in the history of Sequoia where things went wrong. The first growth fund they did was a disaster. The first few years in India were a disaster. Indeed, the first year or so in China was a disaster. So it's all about the grit and the judgment of figuring out when you keep going and forge ahead. The third thing is um, there's been an ongoing, I think, you know, expansion of VC outside the Silicon Valley core. Um, and that had begun before, you know, I, I published the book and I do write about Sequoia moving into China and India and a little bit of, I mentioned, you know, the Israeli market and, and so on. Um, I think it's gone further. I didn't say more about it in my book because there's this thing about writing chronological history, you know, narratives where if you explain about the 1970s and you say, okay, Kleiner Perkins and Sequoia were set up in the same year in 1972, it's elegant in narrative terms to stick with the story later on in the book of the firms you've introduced at the beginning because it's like a personality that the reader recognizes you don't have to start from scratch introducing them and saying who they are um so i did stick with you know sequoia excel kleiner perkins benchmark the sort of obvious suspects uh, masayoshi son and so on and I introduced some new ones like, you know, um, Founders Fund and Y Combinator from the 2005 and forward period, Tiger Global. Um, but I didn't really go and write about European venture operators like Atomico. And it's not that I don't respect them. It's just that they didn't, you know, my book would have just become too big. I didn't want to write Game of Thrones or something, you know, umpteen series long. So, um, but I do think that this has become more and more interesting. And the way that during lockdown, people did deals over Zoom obviously can expand the scope of um, the geography you operate on. And I'm super bullish on, on European tech. I, I think that, you know, Europe has more software engineers, believe it or not, than the United States. It has a bigger consumer market than the United States. Um, what it has lacked has been that entrepreneurial you know, let's go for it, take a risk kind of mentality historically. Um, but once you introduce venture capitalists into the mix and they are willing to, you know, finance risk 
And furthermore, if the entrepreneur fails, but really made a show of leaving everything on the battlefield, you know, really working their guts out and being smart about it, but then some big rival came and, you know, sunk them, well, you know, give them a second shot. And, fund, you know, funding the founder for a second time turns a one-shot super risky game into a repetitive multi-shot game, which is therefore less risky because although, you know, there's this cliche, the venture capitalist is diversified across a lot of bets, whereas, you know, the the entrepreneur only has one bet. But over time, the entrepreneur can have more than one bet, which de-risks the entrepreneur a bit. So anyway, I, I think that as you watch venture capitalists move into Europe, which they are doing, and as you watch um, founders who have worked, let's say, in you know Google or Microsoft in the Valley, and then they come back to their native Greece or their native Sweden or wherever they came from originally, and then they set up a startup there. I mean, this is happening all the time. I was on a call this morning about uh, with a European-based VC who's actually an American, uh, but wants to fund um, startups which are popping up all over Europe from Europeans with with Silicon Valley experience. So I just think it's the, the momentum is there, the market is big enough, the tech savvy is big enough. And when you've got that underwriting of risk from venture capital, there's nothing but upside in Europe. Well, it's 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 good to hear reasons to be bullish on the on the region, and the world is certainly becoming more and more global. Uh, more and more entrepreneurs we meet in different countries. When we ask them, you know, whether they're building their product for the country, they just say from the very beginning they're building it for the world. Um, and you sort of, you know, you used to have this dynamic with companies in Israel, but now you see it more often with India, you see it very often in Europe and everything else. So as the world is becoming global, it only makes sense that finance um, follows it. Um, and, and we certainly believe that ideas and talent is distributed all over the world. And so the more, you know, we enable those founders to start building companies, the better that is um, to have economic opportunity elsewhere. Um, but having said that, there's still a lot of magic in, in Silicon Valley. Um, and so maybe uh, another question on the book, have you had any, um, you know, I'd assume you had a lot of conversations after the book and probably most of the feedback was positive because it's way more you know, fun to, to say good things to somebody. But um, was there any, you know, perhaps negative feedback or something that um, people challenged you on with respect to this book? Well, um, there were Europeans who said, you know, why did you leave us out? Um, and so I explained why I left them out. Um, so that was one category of complaint. Um, John Doerr was not super happy uh, because in my book, I describe how during his sort of solo leadership of Kleiner Perkins after Vinod Kosala left, basically Kleiner Perkins went from hero to zero, right? It was basically, it was the best venture capital partnership in the world, circa 2001, and you can track that by looking either at public stuff, um, like, you know, look at the um, Midas list and see which partnerships the top people come from. And, you know, in 2001, the number one was Vinod Kostler from Kleiner Perkins, and the number three, if I remember right, was John Doerr from Kleiner Perkins. I mean, they really were strong. But I've also kind of double-checked that by talking to the big endowments that allocate to lots of different partnerships and saying, 
or which were the best in this period, and Kainer Perkins basically in the 90s was, was the strongest. Um, and so they were number one. And if you look at most people's league table of where they were, you know, 10, 15 years later, they were not even in the top 10. And because there is some path dependency in venture performance, because reputation gives you access to deal flow, it's it takes some doing to screw up so badly that you go from number one to not even in the top 10. And I kind of described, you know, why John Doerr is a really good messianic technologist who can really sell a company idea like nobody else can. But he was not the right guy, I don't think, to be the managing partner by himself without any sort of check and balance from strong co-partners around the table who would who had sort of, you know, grown up with him, had known him long enough to really challenge him uh, when he needed to be challenged and say, no, John, you're wrong about that. Or, John, you're completely neglecting that, you know, we've got people working for this partnership who might be associates or something, and they need to be developed so that they can be the next generation of talent and we're not spending enough time on that, whatever the issue was. And so um, I think it shows the difference between being a great investor, which John Doerr was, and being a great manager, which he wasn't. Yep. Um, and and certainly things change, right? As uh, every industry goes through different cycles, many firms sometimes you know come back strongly, and um, and so we'll 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 see how it all continues to develop. Um, so maybe let's change uh, topics a little bit. Um, in 2015. You helped to found a startup, uh, infacts.org, uh, which was focused on making a fact-based case for Britain to remain in the European Union. Now, we know how the story ended. Um, so what were some of your learnings about changing minds um, with, with facts uh, from that entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, that's a great question, Olga. I mean, I think what I learned was that it's not enough to be right. It's not enough to have the facts on your side. I mean, I chose that title, In Facts, for this website because it was, you know, a factual website with facts saying why you should be in Europe, not out of it. And the technique was when Boris Johnson or some pro-Brexit person made a speech saying why it was important to leave, you just find the factual errors, which is another way of saying the lies, in what they were saying. It was pretty easy to find them. And you just, you correct them. And because um, my co-founders and I were, you know, pretty senior journalists in London, we had friends at the BBC, friends at other news outlets, and we kind of became a, a source for them because we'd done the, the you know, the, the sort of the uh, spade work of pointing out these factual errors. And then other news sources would use that work to, we hoped, correct these politicians and sort of shame them and show them up as being wrong. And they did do that, the other media organizations. But the net of it all was that, you know, remain lost and leave, get out of Europe, they won, although they were making stuff up. Um, now, what does that tell us? It tells us that to win an argument, people have to, people have to kind of believe in you personally, they have to know you and like you. And I think that's what Boris Johnson had, you know, somehow he connected as a public uh, personality. People just liked him. And they didn't want to ask if he was being truthful because they liked him. And I think that's 
an important message for you know startup founders to think about. So if you're trying to persuade an investor to invest or an early employee to jump ship and join you, it's not just about the facts and like the you know the the data on the total addressable market or whatever. It's also do people know you and trust you and like you and want to be with you and 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 feel like they want to join your team and that's kind of an emotional thing. That's why that quality of extrovert you know, liking to be with other people is really important in this business. Um, so I, I think this is probably obvious to anyone who's been in it for a while. But if you're considering going in, you have to probably look yourself in the mirror and say, am I the kind of person whose skill is, you know, data analysis or or kind of that kind of stuff? Or is my skill sort of more in face-to-face persuasion? Because it's the latter that turns out to matter a lot in startups. So that's a really interesting reflection as as we think about how technology is changing everything around and we've seen with social media companies and we've seen with so much content out there and the difficulty of maintaining integrity of that information on the internet today, right? And it's only going to compound with more and more content being out there. And so, you know, very often people think that solution to challenges of technology is more technology, uh, right? And we can certainly create a lot of different systems to do fact checking as, as somebody is speaking, but um, you know, but what you're saying is that that's not enough, right? And as trust in institutions is declining continuously, it's it's not going to be enough that you know this reputable institution fact checked and and provided a different perspective. There has to be something or someone who would have that ability to develop trust and and likability with the audience um, to be able to maintain truth on on the internet, which is so important for functioning societies. Um, so that's that's a re- interesting idea to reflect on, and um, you know, continuing with with the drama and sort of interesting times that you got a chance to witness and write about. Um, you wrote a book where you covered the release of Nelson Mandela and the collapse of Apartheid. What were some of your insights about writing about such emotionally charged political events in, in history? And what was it like, you know, to be somewhere where so much was, was happening that was just, you know, truly important? So, so being outside Nelson Mandela's jail when he walked out free in, um, let me get this right, 1990, was, you know, such a sort of intense experience that I thought that although I was only 25, my career would be downhill forever thereafter because nothing could match that. I mean, uh, one memory I have is, you know, I was outside the jail when he came out and then he was quickly bundled into a car and driven to Cape Town about an hour away where he would give his first speech. So I ran for my car and every other reporter did the same thing and sort of drove into town to get to the square in the middle of Cape Town where he was going to give his speech. And I shoved my way into the middle of the square. And I remember at times my feet lifting off the ground because the crush of people around me in the square was so intense that, you know, I mean, I'm I'm six foot tall, I'm not sort of super light, but, you know, I would just be hoisted up into the air um, by the crush of people. And Mandela was very late coming out to speak. 
And so everybody was in the square with the African sun beating down on their heads for, you know, two hours, three hours, and people were incredibly thirsty. Some people were fainting. You could hear glass being shattered at shop windows around the square because people were desperate to get some drink. So they would, you know, find a grocery store and go in and steal the soft drinks because they were so thirsty. And so it was it was intense. And that's before you even get to what Mandela said when he came out and sort of the grace with which he kind of, you know, just didn't show bitterness about the fact that 27 years of his life had been stolen from him by being put in jail for believing in racial equality. Um, so this is unbelievably intense stuff. And then the question comes as a writer, well, how do you communicate that to people who are not there and who... You know, what what do you do to capture the grandeur of the historical moment of what you've just been through? And it's almost a separate thing to experience it, you know, with the flesh of other people on your flesh and you're lifted into the air. And on the other hand, express what it means for Africa, for audiences around the world. I mean, those, those could be slightly different things. And so I think what what you need in those moments is the ability somehow to put words around almost indescribable, you know, high excitement, high significance. So, you know, and you come across this a lot, you know, later on, it turns out I had a, lots of other exciting things go on in my uh, writing career. But, you know, right now I'm grappling with um, the subject of artificial intelligence. And, you know, that demands you to sort of try and put down on paper quite how awesome this invention is. Like the the, the first kind of non-human high-level intelligence to be introduced to the environment. I mean, what is this? Is this the printing press? No, it's bigger than that because that was just like a way of disseminating human thought. Now we've got a source of non-human thought. It's different. It's, it's, an, it's like way bigger. And so, you know, you kind of, scrabble around and you know maybe one idea is that this is the most significant thing to happen to the earth since human beings developed the capacity for abstract thought 70,000 years ago i mean maybe that's the analogy but that is the trick it's like this is you know it's huge everybody knows it's huge but how do you articulate the size of it um that is a that is an art which i continue to both struggle with, but also find satisfying, you know, to grapple with. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes as you think about grand ideas, it helps to start dissecting them into smaller categories and kind of starting, um, you know, one step at a time. So are there any AI tools that you've been using in your work or just, you know, life? What, what are your thoughts on, on the usefulness? And have you found um, something where it was particularly helpful in what you were writing or researching? Well, of course, we should remember that, you know, we forget the things are AI as soon as we've used them for a while. So, you know, any predictive text that you might use in any Google product, of course, that's AI. Um, there's AI all around us. And and so everybody, all of us, is experimenting with it all the time. Um, in terms of the new products, I mean, I have played around with GPT-4. Um, and I find it pretty useful. Although, of course, it's the cliche, it, it does hallucinate a bit. and But I think I find that I think it's gotten, there are two stories here. One is that it's gotten better because if you compare sort of how things were when 
ChatGPT was first released, and then when GPT-4 was first released, the ability to drive it into hallucination and say racist things and be offensive and declare love to you and all that kind of stuff. I mean, clearly these models are not allowed to do that anymore. So, you know, the engineers have been working hard and they have sort of safeguarded the models further using, um, you know, reinforcement learning through human feedback, basically red teaming the hell out of these things until they behave like the children who have been told by their parents not to say certain things at the dinner table. And eventually you shape their manners into something that's not going to get them into trouble. And it's the same with these systems. So I think they've gotten better. Um, there is a kind of kind of story that it's expensive to serve the biggest version of the model to users uh, in terms of compute and electricity. And so once you've got a decent flow of users, you quietly you know, degrade uh, how much compute you're letting them use. And uh, I, I, I'm told by people who know the behind the scenes story, there might be a bit of that going on. Um, but I think, I think, you know, look, I'm very bullish on this stuff. And I, and I think it's already astonishing. It will become better and better. And it, it's already great for coders who want to be more productive. Um, it's pretty useful, I think, for writers who want to be more productive. Although the difference is that with code, you can run the code and see if it works or not. Whereas with writing, you may not know, you can't just do one thing that would check whether there's any factual error in the output you're getting. So I wouldn't ever rely on it, but I would consult it just like I would talk to a source and I would check what they say before I use it. Yeah. And, you know, one question I like to ask people is what what they are contrarian about um, when, when it comes to some of these topics. And on the topic of AI, you know, I find that, or my prediction is that a lot of it will actually help to make us more human. And so here's a couple of examples. You know, sometimes people would, would have these conversations where they'll say that, oh, you know, this takes humanity out of us. If like, if people start, you know, using these tools to type something, et cetera, and there's something so special about human communication, but that assumes that you are communicating with a human who is very effective at that, right? And we all know that that's not true. Even, even the best of us sometimes face situations where we wish we express something differently, right? And and I'm not even talking about neurodiversity sort of related issues with communication, but just in general, you know, one of my use cases is um, I use email server Superhuman, and their recent capability is around you know typing emails. And I hate rejecting people. I'm I'm much more comfortable with taking rejection myself. But the one thing that I found is. I, I use superhuman to draft my rejection emails and they come out so much nicer. And, you know, I'm Mr. European. Most of my responses would be sort of like, no thanks, right? Or something like that. But um, but it drafts something that sounds just so much nicer. And, and I've gotten emails back from people saying, this is the sweetest email I've ever received. And so, you know, I- Now have, your secret is out. You've, you've, you've said it on a podcast. Okay. You know, yeah, it's, no it's, it's all- it's it's all good because sometimes I would say drafted by superhuman, but the intention and the emotion is mine. And I think that that's what matters, right? Um, so anyways, I think one is that these tools can actually make us more human. But the second thing is that, um, you know, very often people talk about the decline of creativity. And I actually think that 
a lot of these tools separate the technical ability to produce something from the idea of, you know, using that means of expression to articulate a thought, right? And when when we put these tools in, in the hands of a lot of people, then all of a sudden we enable people who can't write music to become composers. And I think that that will unleash a whole new wave of creativity of very different talent coming into it. So I'm incredibly bullish on, um, you know, technology overall, but, um, you know, but let me go back to, to my original question. So what are some of the things in the world of technology, AI specifically, uh, maybe, or it can be broader, that you are contrarian about? I think I'm a bit contrarian in my view of the, the, the type of AI risk, which is known as the sort of alignment problem. In other words, how do you align the model in a way that it won't decide that to get to the goal of, you know, let's say, getting the pollution out of the ocean, it doesn't suddenly figure out a way to transfer oxygen from the atmosphere into the ocean, get rid of the pollution, the algae and whatever, but in the same time asphyxiate the human race. So th this is, I didn't just make that example up, that was in a Financial Times essay, which is actually a very, very good essay. But that particular example, my contrarian view is that that's just stupid. I mean, it's absurd that the, the, you know, you have to believe that First of all, the humans programmed the uh, system in a way that didn't foresee that kind of thing. Secondly, that then the system can't be unplugged. Thirdly, that the system manages to connect itself to some chemical plant that's going to make this enzyme or whatever it is that's going to transfer the oxygen. You don't know where the plant is because otherwise you would just go and shut it down um, or blow it up or attack it with a bomb or something. Um, so you have to believe in a whole bunch of completely implausible scenarios for the kind of, you know, ex machina or, or sort of you know, that kind of movie type, sci-fi type, you know, the machine gets its own will and starts coming after the humans because the machines are more intelligent. I think what that misses is that although machines will be more intelligent for sure, there's the question of your objective function, your will. Humans are wired by evolution to care about survival above all else. Whereas machines are wired by their programmers for a bunch of other objective functions, and their own survival is not the main thing. And even, you know, if you imagine that they somehow evolved to have that sense of survival, which I'm not quite sure anyone's really specified how you would evolve that way, but but then you would get multiple machines that would evolve in different directions and they wouldn't all be evolving to the same point, it seems to me. So I just think, you know, it's a cliche about any military analysis of any war that the side that is more motivated has an advantage. And in any putative war between the human beings and the robots in the future, human beings will be 100% motivated to survive as a race. And the machines won't be optimizing for that, it seems to me. Yeah, there's, you know, there's lots of different ways of, of thinking about um, these problems. And um, I'm definitely on the side of techno optimism. And I do think that it's very important for us to create the correct regulatory frameworks for a lot of this technology. But, um, you know, the benefits probably do 
um, outweigh some of the potential issues, or at least, yeah, I like to think that we can be in control of of managing that. Um, and so, perhaps in the conclusion of our conversation, you know, I like to ask something uh, lighter, something more personal. And since you've spent a lot of time in the UK, you live in London. Um, what do you think are the most underrated and overrated things about the UK? Okay, so off the top of my head, I'd say that an exaggerated perception is that the weather is bad all the time. The truth is it's only bad some of the time. <laughs> um, and, That's 75% still counts yeah, some of yeah, the time. Yeah, no, no, no. I think it's better than that. And uh, maybe it's a beneficiary of global warming in that sense. Well, so it's not bad weather, it's only only bad clothes, so. (laughs) 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 I I, I lived in Japan for three years, and then I lived in the US for 18 years, and I came back to Britain, and I was sort of pleasantly surprised about how livable it was. Uh, I think that my favorite sort of distinctive thing about Britain is the sense of humor, starting with Monty Python, which I still think is an all-time classic, going through a TV series called The Thick of It, which is sort of like The West Wing, only a thousand percent funnier. And then moving from that to Sasha Baron Cohen, who, you know, does Ali G and all these things, which I think are genius. And maybe even a TV show called Gogglebox, which if you ever come to the UK or you figure out a way of seeing the UK version of it as a foreigner, it's just a terrific way of both having fun and sort of getting a view on Britain. And the concept is, you have about five different British families sitting on their couches at home watching the same TV program. And the show kind of flits from one living room and capturing the that family's reaction to whatever it is they're watching. Could be the news, could be a new drama on TV, whatever. And they just have hilarious reactions. And then, then it goes to the next you know, household. So the first one may be a kind of um, Northern English family with um, sort of, let's say, um, Arabic speaking roots. Okay, so you've got a kind of immigrant type family in the north of England. Then you've got a very kind of white gin and tonic swilling southern, you know, kind of pink corduroy, pink pants sort of, you know, get that for the man, I mean, uh, sort of character in the south. And then you've got some only semi-intelligible Scottish family because their accents are so strong. And then you just got a bunch of different people. And um, they're one of the ones that they go back to a lot, a sort of very um, self-consciously camp, sort of overdressed gay couple, and they're really funny. Uh, and so it's it's a slice of modern British life. It's just also really funny. Gogglebox, yeah. highly recommend. Yes, well, thank you. Thank you for all these recommendations. I have a long flight coming up, so this this should keep me entertained. And uh, yes, British humor is certainly one of the things that I miss the most about my life in the UK. And um, and it feels like it's it's something that maybe is um, you know doesn't always get enough credit. But um, Sebastian, it's been such a pleasure to to talk to you about um, all of these different topics. It's always great to talk about um, you know to talk with journalists because they have so many different perspectives. Um, and um, really enjoy this conversation. Yeah, me too, Olga. Thank you for having me. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to the Village Global podcast. You can check us out online at villageglobal.vc. We'd love to hear from you, your feedback, your ideas, your inspirations. You can email us at hello at villageglobal.vc.